0: So, we are talking about the Bible, which, if any of you have been around for a while, you'll be sick of us talking about. And if you're new here, you'll be like, of course. Uh, But that's because you don't know our community. Um, Lots of us stopped reading the Bible many years ago because it's too traumatic. Um, But we're trying to find our way back to it, or at least be released to put it down, (laughs) you know, like a cat. (laughs) Sorry, cat lovers. I like cats too. Um, We spent the first part of the series trying to work out why many of us have complicated relationships with the Bible. So we spent a bunch of time hearing from our community about what kind of uh, struggles they face with reading the text. Uh, And then we heard and heard and heard, which is really cool. And then we started to go through the first half of our series, which is what we normally do is called Roadblocks, where we talk about some of our struggles with a particular idea. um, And we try and work our way through some of those things and see if taking things from a different angle will help us. And then the second half of the series, which we're getting into now, uh, we call Green Pastures, which is trying to explore ways of finding life. Uh, And so for this section, it's about, is there a way of engaging with the text which is faithful to? the text, which is faithful to the Bible, which takes it seriously, uh, but might not run into some of the same roadblocks that we talked about in the first half of the series. Um, So quick recap, lots of us started our relationship with the Bible a little bit like this when we were children, and then over time, uh, it
1: became something more like this, where we felt powerless against it, and what we
0: discussed in the first half, half of the series, is it's not so much the text, it's the way we've been taught to understand the text, that we feel like we've lost a voice in that process. Um, and then there's that. Um, if you'd like an explanation of the egg beater, you can listen to another week's <laughs> series. We're trying to approach the Bible without fear uh, and we're trying to understand that some of us have been taught to use the Bible in a way which harms us uh, and how long will we continue to let that approach harm us before we release ourselves to explore another way of approaching the text, which I would argue is still faithful and I would argue is more faithful to the text. But anyway, there's a whole first half of the series if you want to dig into that. Uh, actually, I'm going to go back to that so you don't read ahead of me because it's very naughty. So today we're moving into green pastures, trying to find ways of approaching the text that bring life. And one of the ways we're going to do that is by asking the question of if we read the Bible by, from a different angle, will that help us now? Don't take this too literally. That might make the text blurrier, just changing the actual physical angle you read it from, but that won't necessarily help you. Uh, this is a metaphorical angle we're talking about today. So we're gonna. I'm going to try and explain um, a strange thing that's continued to happen with the Bible all over the world for centuries and centuries, which in the 1960s grew into a recognized approach uh, of reading the text, and since that time, it's changed the way many of us approach Scripture. This idea for me, as a person in the mid-20s who was convinced they were going to become a smug new atheist, um, gave me a way back into the text, which I loved, but which I had issues with. It's called liberation theology. And... As a cisgendered straight white man, I'm the best person to tell you about liberation theology. (laughs) Those of you who know anything about liberation theology can laugh at me, as you always do. Um, To see how this happened, we're going to look at the central story of the Hebrew Bible, which is the Exodus. The Hebrew Bible also, you may have been told, is the, the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible is a much more respectful way of talking about it. The Exodus from Egypt to the Promised Land. Here the Israelites are trapped in Egypt as slaves, working tirelessly to make bricks for Pharaoh, a miserable and hopeless existence. God shows up to Moses, a fugitive hiding out in the desert, and tells him he's going to lead the people into a new land that God had prepared for them. And this whole process takes place with a very bizarre set of plagues. And eventually... The Israelites are led out across the Red Sea, chased by the Egyptian army unsuccessfully, and then go and wander around the desert for forty years, and then go into what is the, called the Promised Land. It's a very brief synopsis of a very big story. Bear with me. We're going to jump back to Exodus six, which is where God approached Pharaoh. Uh, sorry, God approached Moses and told him to go to Pharaoh. And I want you to think about growing up in the communities that you did, how you've been taught to kind of apply or understand this text, particularly the ideas of freedom and the promised land. So because my eyes are bung, uh, I'm going to ask someone else to read this text for me that can actually see it. Otherwise, it's just going to be a guess. Would anyone like to read the text this morning? Stuart's got his hand up, but I'm ignoring it.
2: Karen. Exodus six, one to ten. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac. And to Jacob, as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labour. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country.
1: Thank you. So Moses goes to Pharaoh tells him to let the people go.
0: They don't. He doesn't. And so bad things happen. This happens a lot of times. And eventually Pharaoh says, get out of here. And the Egyptians, uh, the Israelites leave Egypt and go and start their journey to the promised land. So how are some ways in which you've been taught to understand the idea and themes of freedom and
1: promised land from this story? My favourite Sunday school song
2: was Pharaoh Pharaoh and it was so joyful and um, just assuming that it would all go really well. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a great – it was just so much faith that everything was going to be great because of that song. Great to add, other than like I just think of the Prince of Egypt, the movie, a lot.
1: Yeah, she's right behind you. It's like one of those great horror movies. Yes. <laughs>
3: um, with the, I guess it's not that, um, amazing. I thought, but the Promised Land was always seen as kind of God had been holding this place for them. And people who were living there were just kind of encroaching on it, and they they shouldn't have been there. And <laughs> it was kind of like their their birthright. Um, yeah, so they were kind of like the baddies for having their lives set up on this land that was meant to
1: be the Israelites. Yeah. Yep, for sure. How was freedom described? Or well, what was the promised land for you? Uh, I think
2: actually, the way that I was taught about the story was that it was something that it was something that had happened in the past and was already over and done with, and that we were kind of now in the
3: promised land
2: almost. Um, but also that it was a story from a distant, like that it was it was to do that, to do with the Israelites, and uh, it was just history of how we got to where we were.
3: I think growing up I found this to be one of my favourite stories but also really disturbing (laughs) as well. I had so much interest in it and like you were saying, it was one of my favourite movies and I think probably still is Prince of Egypt. But I think I was particularly disturbed by the brutality and the cost of life and the way that it was the radius of impact as well and I tried to I remember being quite little and trying to apply that to now you know in modern day and I think that would just not fly (laughs) you know and yeah the cost of life the brutality was really quite real to me and I yeah have always been a little disturbed about it
0: (laughs) and rightly so
1: Yeah, I think I always struggled
3: with the brutality as well and now that I've kind of aged a bit and and looked at the story from a, through a different angle, I suppose, it's kind of like God was like, yep, cool, you didn't let these people out of Egypt so I'm going to kill your eldest sons and, and then you're going to go to this land which is promised to you, it's the promised land and you're going to kill all these people but it's kind of like, well, that's not their land, they're stealing that Land and it's, and it's but it's made out to be this cheery thing because God's ordaining it and it's I don't know it's just very confusing for me. It's like is this condoning stealing land? Is this condoning like genocide? Like
1: mm.
0: I'm gonna stop you get there because you're getting way too close to liberation theology.
2: <laughs> I come from a really different background to most of you
0: probably all of you, so when I read this for the first time, I actually saw um, that slavery, I actually saw myself as a slave um, and um, in a really weird way. My culture was the Egyptians. So uh, for me, I read this and it was just hope. It was like
1: hang in there, you're going to make it through. Last couple. That
4: was probably a bit similar to Kat in that, yeah, it was always sort of taught as a God has done this and delivered us to the promised land and even now today we, we need to, you know, just like stand on and declare and believe that because, you know, if you feel like you're not in the promised land, you actually are and God has already won it and you just need to believe harder sort of thing, which that in itself is obviously challenging and then especially when you step back a little further and go, so this thing that I'm supposed to like believe that God has redeemed me for in, you know, for eternity is, as other people have said, based on genocide and you know um, yeah, killing firstborn sons and things like that. Which is like, well, I'm I'm not sure I want that.
0: <laughs> what was the freedom? Like what what was freedom supposed to be? What was promised?
4: It was sort of very vague and undefined, but it was basically just about if things are going badly in your life, you need to believe harder for because you you're living in freedom, and so life shouldn't be hard or bad or disappointing or anything. Yeah
1: um, the back,
0: The tradition I grew up in like this was often spiritualized. Um, this is about uh, being free from sin, um being free from. Um, stuff that would hold you back. The promised land was often heaven. Did anyone else grow up with that? The promised land was was heaven
1: or your best life now or something similar. Um, this story changes a lot depending on who you are when you're reading it.
0: Um, For me, when growing up, God essentially is concerned about sorting out your heart and getting you to heaven, um, from setting you free from sin. And I'm not saying that that's a wrong reading, but situate yourself differently and the story looks really different. And this is a pattern that has happened across history over and over and over and over again whenever powerless people are left with the text, their reading of it is very, very different than that. America was settled with an understanding that God backed the settlers, that this land had been set aside from them for them to go and conquer and create a new promised land of freedom. Uh, the colonization and invasion of Latin America Asia, the Pacific, was God being on the side of Christians who were there to go to this empty land and proclaim the gospel and own it for God. So if you ask them whose side is God on,
1: God is on the side of Christians. African-American Slave theology and spirituality
0: is a really good example of what happens when you leave the text with people on the underside of power. Slaves got taught the Bible by their masters, whose interpretation of the Bible enforced their right to rule. So for the white man, slaves submit to your masters. God is here to create order and control.
1: That's the message of the text. But the slaves heard a different Bible story. Imagine yourself as a slave on the cotton fields, Louisiana. Where do you see yourself in this story? Who are you in this story? Uh, For those of you who listen to On
0: Being, pretty lovely podcast with the Adorable, wonderful, brilliant, wise, Krista Tippett. Um, You might have heard Joe Carter, who's a um, gospel singer a few weeks back who passed away this year. Uh, She interviewed him about the spirituals, about gospel music, um, which has its roots in... um, back in the days of slavery. And he told a story about... The spirituals always having this kind of double meaning um, about how, when slaves heard the story of Moses, they placed themselves in the place of Israel being slaves and identified that freedom not just as going to heaven but is actually something concretely changing with them on earth. So we're going to play you a little extract of this clip of Joe Carter
1: talking about um, the Let My People Go song.
5: Have a listen. And then, um, you know, the story of slavery.
4: Yeah, the exodus, you mean. Yes. Being captive in of a the foreign Jews land.
5: the Jews in Egypt. Yes. And so, you know... Go down, Moses, way down to Egypt, and tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. And sometimes I imagine how some of those songs were used, and I imagine someone on on the plantation, the the master, who is always very happy when he hears the slaves singing, because he knows where they are. He knows they're not escaping as long as he can hear them. And old master comes out one day, he says... Hey, Joe, big hey Joe, I don't hear nobody singing down there. You guys, strike me up one of them good old spiritual songs. You know how I like them. Give me one of them good old songs. And, and, and often when I go to the school children, I have them sing with me. I say, okay, now pretend you're going to be, you're all slaves, okay? And, and master wants us to sing a song, but you, we don't really want to sing for master, do we? No, no, we don't. I said, well, I'll tell you something. The master loves our singing but he doesn't listen to the words we say. He doesn't have a clue what we're So we can say anything we want. So let's give the master a good old song.
4: What do you sing with the kids?
5: When Israel was in Egypt's land, let my people go, oppressed so hard they could not stand. Let my people go, go down, Moses, way down in Egypt's land, and tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. And after we go through the song, they say, hey, old master, how was that one? <laughs> <laughs> Mm. And then, um, you know, the story of slavery. Yeah,
4: the exodus, you mean. Yes. Being captive in of this, land. In,
5: in Egypt. <laughs> yes.
1: Thanks. Oh, here we go. Okay, so from the underside of power, these songs look different. And Let My People Go looks different. When you're in slavery... The metaphorical idea of freedom only has so much weight
0: because your concrete circumstances cry out for not just spiritual freedom, but for something to actually change in your lived reality. Where you read the text from makes a big difference, and this is one of the insights of Latin American um, liberation theology, which we'll talk about in a minute. But if you look at whose voice has carried the most weight over the centuries in theology, a pattern emerges. (laughs) Introducing major theologians, theologians from the apostolic fathers to the twentieth century. Only one of them's got glasses, or two of them got glasses. So it's like, guess who? Do you see a pattern emerging, and who gets to say what theology is?
1: They're all quite white. (laughs) all very male, Bed or not, no beard, it seems to make not much difference. Curly hair, straight hair, yeah. For centuries and centuries, who got to define what theology
0: was, was from a very, very limited perspective. Something happened in the 1960s Um, in Latin America, the Catholic Church had come over with um, the colonizing forces and had set up lots of different churches around the place, but the sheer volume of rural and urban poor meant that it was really difficult for priests to get around to deliver the mass. Um, And so in response to this, they set up these little urban and rural communities uh, called Base Communities, where they essentially set up a group of people um, to meet together and discuss the Bible and be the church together until the priest could get around and actually do church, you know, actually. Um, and so these poor priests would go around on horseback from community to community to community trying to get around them all to deliver mass and hear confession and, and do all these things. Uh, and by that time, the text had been translated um, or, um, yeah, so, so the people could read the text. And so what you got was the same thing that's happening with, uh, that happened during slavery is these people who are experiencing grinding poverty, um, who have no education and no hope um, of the kind of flourishing that others in the country experience reading these texts, and going, wait a minute. God isn't just concerned about our souls. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and God brought them out of that slavery. Jesus promised to bring freedom to the captives, and here we are, economically captive. And so because the message couldn't be controlled, this groundswell
1: of liberation theology emerged. The oppressed communities saw themselves in Israel and believed that God was concerned for their situation.
0: If God is on the side of the poor and marginalized and God cares about their lived realities, what does that mean then for their economic circumstances? What does it mean for them politically? What does it mean for them in their education? In the wake of colonization, where the wealth had flown in one direction, leaving millions on the poverty line, does God really stand on the side of the colonizer? So this Latin American liberation theology began to emerge as kind of an academic force, but at the same time, in other parts of the world, all kinds of other people who had experienced the underside of power were experiencing the same thing. And so feminist theology, um, and I'm going to actually get Tamsin to talk really briefly about this, but about the kind of experience and conversation that came up during the development of, um, do you want to talk from your chair? Yeah. Just about what was going on in feminist theology around the same time.
3: Um, So interesting in that the sort of first and second wave feminist movement in society of women discovering, (coughs) kind of observing that they didn't have the same voice, so the sort of... Needing to vote, just suddenly. Hey, we count for us to to thrive. We need to have a voice in society. Second wave, really similar time to liberation theology. Um, women saying we want to re- reconsider our role in society, and women in the church saying, "Well, the scriptures, our sacred text, is written by men. We've had two thousand years of interpretation by men. Um, the prominent voices of all of our kind of churches have been men." Um, and all of our terminology has been male. Suddenly, kind of going, can we not question this? Um, and so those questions suddenly being discussed by women and trying to understand um, what that means. That conversation also triggered, kind of linking into liberation theology of the dichotomy between man and woman, kind of heaven, heaven and hell, um, sacred and secular. Earthly and divine and kind of all of those really kind of the church had really kind of kept a lot of that really divided Um, and So part of feminist theology was sort of as women kind of often were on the Kind of carnal side of the divine and kind of they're always women are so impaired by their menstrual cycle So they can't preach and all that sort of thing of just they're so sort of affected by their earthly selves They can't be doing sacred work. So they're questioning that um Kind of connects with just going this divide is not as clear as that um and the voice of those who are oppressed by the system need to speak out um, in turn even their voices are criticized well the feminist movement is kind of the white european or western feminist movement which beautifully sort of lent into well what other voices are needing to come up in the the Dalit movement of women in India or um, even birthing the queer theology of kind of what are the voices of those who have not had a voice in the church. So it kind of triggered this whole movement, triggered one after another of what is the good news, what is salvation for this person and you have to do the hard work to learn about it because it's like I was just thinking of having my glasses on, like you you do read the script, the scriptures through your glasses and we just haven't taken them off and looked at the glasses that we've been wearing. Um, Some people then throw, just say, look, we can't actually, you know, like, what do they say? You can't just add women and stir. You just kind of, it's not a short kind of quick solution that we just throw in. You have a quota of five women on your board and then you're sort of doing this hard work. It is questioning the power dynamic in that the gospel is political. The gospel is about power and the good news is about power. And like, it's kind of doing the good hard work, not the kind of, the sort of easy, feminist kind of superficial work which is kind of what liberation theology sort of triggered and feminist theology has triggered um the stirring the pot and that we're still not done so we'll probably have another week of doing this we're still not done in that the god we talk of is a male god and getting rid of that is a long hard you know that god is not a man that's a really long like mary daly who was a um Sorry, I'm taking more time. <laughs> Mary Daly, who is <clears throat> one of the prominent, she kind of gave up on it. She just said, um, I, give, I, I refute the God, my God cannot be unmanified, essentially, so I cannot continue as a Christian. Like I just can't, I can't cleanse this of the damage that our masculinity or the patriarchal view has done, so I need to find another path to find God. and." Yeah, so like that whole cry, God, rid me of God, like rid me of the God that I see to find the God beyond that God is the work of all this kind of liberating theologies of us trying to find the God behind the God that has been given. Yeah.
1: Thank
0: you. Um, and we'll, what we'll talk about in the coming weeks is that these things aren't. This is not new either. Like these things have come up over and over and over again over the centuries. But the narrative that we hold as the central narrative defines what we see as being okay and not okay. Um, and this asks questions of that. This is not the first time the early church fathers, again the fathers, um, but actually grapple with this themselves about the, um, the the gender of God and dealt with it in actually pretty progressive and feminist ways. But again. That story got suppressed. Um, anyway, at the same time, um, African American theology in the US, uh, in the US so the, um, with the civil rights movement, um, the, the black church had a long history of grassroots liberation theology and activism, and that kind of came to the fore um, around the civil rights movement. James H. Cohn, um, authored Black Theology and Black Power in 1969, which was a really seminal text, um, and spoke about the unwillingness of the white church um, to address issues of racism, poverty, and education for the poor. Um, Here's a couple of of, um, quotes from him. If the church is to remain faithful to its Lord, it must make a decisive break with the structure of the society by launching a vehement attack on the evils of racism in all its forms. It must become prophetic, demanding a radical change in the interlocking structures of this society. Um, Going on to say that those structures are unlikely to change when um, most of the church leaders are in the KKK. So this is what he saw day in, day out of, this is, we are supposed to be the church and that's supposed to be our first loyalty, yet the Integration of racism and the white church um, just means that it is, never, it is not speaking out en masse against the evils of racism. Looking back um, in a book called My Soul Looks Back, he said, it was, experience, it was like experiencing the death of white theology and being born again into the theology of black experience. I now realized why it was so difficult for me to make the connection between black experience and theology. As long as theology was exclusively defined by whites, the connection would never be um, made because of their racism. So what he's pointing at here is saying, your lived experience shapes how you see the text. And What we know from talking about the text in past weeks is there are major strands within the Bible. There's major arguments going on. Some of them are about control and power from above and freedom from below. And you'll find both of those things in the text. And we'll talk about this in weeks to come, but Jesus chose sides in some of these debates. So what brought all these experiences together um, Lillian Kales-Barger, who's a um, Catholic theologian, says an experience of enslavement alongside a rhetoric of freedom. So, so telling black slaves that they're free because God has saved their soul while enchaining them, you're free, but I don't feel free. Women in the church, you're free. You're valued, you're gifted, but you cannot do all of these things. So there's three major orientations, um, shifts in liberation theology. And we're just going to blaze through these because we're going to talk about them over the next few weeks, but just to give you kind of a, a bit of a sketch. Um, the first is that God is on the side of the oppressed, um, or what Gouda is called the prefer- preferential option for the poor. That what we see in the text over and over again, is the, um, particularly in the prophets, is that God having a concern for those on the underside of power, the foreigners, the poor Um, in Luke, Jesus coming and saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, again, if your experience of life is like (laughs) pretty all right, then your easiest reading of this is just to say it's about spiritual things. But if you're actually poor and having your land taken off you because you're being overtaxed like the people of Jesus' day were by the Roman Empire, then you would have read this much more concretely and materially. Um, The second is that God works for justice on earth, transformation of the world, not just of disembodied souls. Liberation theology argues that you can't separate spiritual transformation from political and lived realities. Now, again, it doesn't need to be either or. Um, we don't need to go to a binary where we say, God it doesn't actually care about the state of our hearts or there's nothing else going on. But it's about tipping the balance backwards to say, I mean, which is what James Cone was saying. So the white church preaches freedom. At the same time, my friends are getting lynched and hung from trees. How, 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 is, how is that okay? How is that freedom? Um, the third thing is um, the recognition that we all read through a particular lens of our experience. Liberation theology recognizes there is no theology without an agenda. Uh, So we're all reading from, from a particular lens and hearing other people's lenses and experiences should challenge our lens. The lens of the powerful primarily gravitates towards maintaining order and moving towards spiritualization at the cost of material.
1: Everything is fine. Let's not cause a commotion. For the lens of the underside, ask them to ask
0: what needs to be disrupted in the system. What is salvation? What is God doing in the world? What is righteousness? Whose side is God on? Your vantage point, and the vantage point of those who teach you, will radically change how you see these questions. And so out of this kind of broad movement of liberation theology, lots of other theologies have spawned. Um, We'll talk about them in the coming weeks. Next week, a friend of mine, Uh, Shane Clifton, who some of you may have, uh, he's spoken here a couple of times before, but he's a good guy. He was head of theology at the college I study at, um, and he had an accident at 43, I think. Um, Went from being a very uh, sports-oriented, active male, um, had an accident and broke his neck, and is now a tetraplegic, Um, and that has... Made him ask a lot of questions about theology and disability. So he's going to be talking to us about disability and theology next week, which I invite you to come along and hear, which will be really cool. Um, Yeah, but then we'll be going through some of the – looking at some of the other um, theologies that have spawned out of liberation theology and asking what questions that asks for us um, and trying to listen to some other perspectives. Cool. That is a really crappy overview of a really beautiful thing. Um, and normally we have lots of space for like kind of like discussion-y things during our get-togethers, but um, we'll get lots of that in the weeks to come. I just kind of wanted to spend some time, for those of you who hadn't encountered liberation theology yet, to get some of the framework stuff, and then we'll be getting some more of our experiences in the week to come. So we're going to have communion now. Um, This is a table of inclusion... And welcome and freedom of all kinds. Jesus invited us to gather. Whenever we gather to eat and drink together, I remember his body and his blood. Um, not so ironically,
1: at the hands of an empire. A man who disrupted systems. Looking for freedom. Um, and we gather in memory of Jesus who lived and died and was raised for our freedom of all kinds. And so, yeah, as
0: a community, every week we get together and have some miniature juice and miniature crackers um, in remembrance of Jesus and an acknowledgement of Jesus' presence here with us. And if you wish to join us, all are welcome to the table. Um, we just hold our emblems until everyone's got some and then we eat and drink together. Um, if this is not for you, then that's totally fine too. If you just like to pretend because you don't want to stand out, that's A-OK as well. It's very very nice juice, my son assures me. He, Jesus' his favorite juice is his favourite juice. It's more to do with the sugar than the Jesus, I think, but, you know, we'll allow um, Yeah, so come, gather around the table and um, we'll eat and drink together when everyone has. Jesus, we acknowledge that you came to bring freedom to the captives. Help us to keep on asking what that might mean for us.
1: Help us to see where we are, Israel. Help us to see where we are, Pharaoh. Listening can be really uncomfortable. that we believe that we can hear your voice through many mouths. Give us grace, give us truth, give us kindness and beauty and love. The cross, so barbaric and grotesque, yet through that pain, great beauty emerged. Help us to be willing to take up our cross. Set aside our rights and our privilege, as you did, that we would not spend our lives trying to cling to privilege, but we'd spend our lives working out what it is to see justice come. Let us be kind to each other. Help us to see each other as gifts that have been given to this community. We thank you for your love. Spirit Sophia, continue to rupture and mess things up.
4: Amen. Let's get a drink together.